Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Anna, many of our listeners will um, be familiar with you from your writing in the Church Times and your um, participation and, and winning of the Theology Slam last year. Could you tell us a bit about how the idea for this book came about and what you sort of hoped that it would achieve I suppose or the the impact that it would have on people yeah I suppose there's a couple of different parts to why the book took on the final form that it did so one would be the content um, the topic and the discussion and I think the idea of focusing on climate and ecological grief really emerged out of this sense that I had that we had some very specific and dominant theological approaches to talking about climate change and ecological collapse Um, So, for example, our churches are getting really good at um, proposing really good things that Christians um, should do in response to crises, um, whether that's personal changes to our energy use or or more structural changes, whether it's petitions, whether it's changing the ways we read scripture in church um, to focus on the presence of the non-human in scripture. There's all these different um, ways to approach faith that have been proposed as uh, responses to climate and ecological collapse. And all of those are good and worthy things to do. But I had noticed that we had this real gap, which was around acknowledging things that had already been lost and things that we couldn't now save. So a lot of our conversations are very oriented towards what we should be doing differently. And while that's helpful, it doesn't erase the things that have been lost uh, when we don't talk about them that loss doesn't go anywhere. So I wanted to um, invite people to examine for themselves and in communities um, what those losses mean for us and also what the phenomenon of climate grief means for Christian faith. So this is an experience that um, is fairly well documented now um, as something that is on the rise in people's relations to the world around them, but it's not something we're talking about in the church especially. And so I wanted to find a way to bring that into the conversation. I guess in the other part of it was why it took the shape of a, of a collection rather than me writing, you know, 200 pages of, of my own personal perspective on climate grief. Um, and I guess, for one thing, I didn't really want to write 200 pages this year of my own personal perspective. But also, there's been a real, there's been a real emphasis within climate and ecological movements on voices coming from the West. That's where the majority of the voices um, given platforms are coming from. And so our our experiences and perspectives um, that we're talking about are quite narrow in their their source. So I wanted to create that kind of dialogue as well. But it seems storytelling and poetry and song are important in a lot of cultures. Yeah, perhaps here in the West, do you think we lean more towards protest and direct action? And did you therefore think it was important for for us here in the West in particular to hear particularly stories and particularly from a wide variety of perspectives? I I maybe don't see protest and story as um, alternatives to each other. I don't see them necessarily as different choices. I I think um, in the West, as well as in other places of the world, protest and direct action tends to be accompanied by particular narratives we tell about ourselves. And certainly protest songs are not exclusive to one part of the world. So I don't think I see them as distinct necessarily. But I suppose one thing we could say is that 
we are maybe less comfortable in our churches with talking about how our um, emotional responses to what's happening in the world shapes our faith, shapes our practice of that faith. And that will vary by denomination and by tradition. But to see those stories or those histories as formative for the life of the church is perhaps something that um, could be better incorporated into our tradition. And the other thing I wanted to do in this book as well was move away from this tendency that we have in a lot of climate justice work in churches, which is that we receive stories from elsewhere in the world and then we act on them here. And so we, we create this relationship where um, we are the actors and there are these other passive people elsewhere who tell us about their troubles and then we act rather than taking the time to tell our own stories as well. Um, but also to see people in other parts of the world as actors. And so this book tries to present different um, perspectives, not only as passive um, recipients of trauma or suffering, but also as actors in their own right. So it's a book about the global church, um, which is predominantly found in the majority world. That's where most Christians are. And so if we're gonna be honest about the experience of Christians thinking theologically about climate change, then it needs to begin um, where those majority voices are found. And that's where leadership on this issue is going to have to ultimately come from, because that's where the worst impact is and also where the least culpability lies. I, I was reading recently um, Christian Aid's new research on the, the thinking of black British Christians around climate change. Um, and there was some very interesting statistics around um, their perspective on it. But the one that really stuck out to me was that um, was of British adults and their perspective on um, who is worst affected by climate change. And it's something like 30% um, of British adults think that white people across the world are the more vulnerable ethnic group to the negative impacts of climate change than, um, than black people. Um, so, you know, there's real work to be done in our psyche um, in this country around how we imagine the impact of climate change and how we talk about it. And also, you know, I think in some ways that's quite an accessible way in for Christians because Christianity in the UK does have this um, longer relationship with the idea of justice or loving your neighbor as being central to what it means to express Christian faith. You know, um, Tear Fund was one of the earliest international development organizations to run a campaign on climate change because they saw it as a justice issue. And so by emphasizing the justice oriented nature of the conversation, then um, hopefully it avoids people treating the subject as though climate grief is just for people who have a very strong relationship with some trees near them or something, that, um, that it's a much wider conversation than that. Can you explain a bit about the, the focus of the book? You talk in the introduction that it's, it's not just about loss on a sort of global scale, it's, it's also about the loss of, of the particular I think one of the things people will say about climate or ecological grief or anxiety, those kinds of associated experiences is that it feels overwhelming because it feels like it's about everything. And I wanted to help people to think about the ways that grief over the world isn't um, about death in abstraction. We grieve the death of particular things, whether that's particular creatures or particular places, just like our love takes the shape of people that we love or places that we love. Uh, we love particular things and people. We don't gen generically feel love. Um, I think our grief functions 
in a very similar way. Um, so the ways that we grieve the world will be particular to the places we come from and the things we've experienced. And we don't come from the same places. So we have a great deal to learn from the grief of people who have ex different experiences to us and dialogue with those different experiences can make our understanding of this kind of grief richer. And I think it's also um, a way perhaps of helping us to um, find ways to express that grief well, because it roots us in the particular narratives, the particular stories of loss um, that we understand that are particularly present for us. You say in, 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 in the introduction, I think it is the book, that grief is not the same as despair. I think it would be fair to describe feelings of grief as both a response to the real state of the world. And so therefore that experience is meaningful as an expression of being human. So when we grieve, we are being honest about the nature of death and what has been lost. Uh, and we're, we're responding appropriately to that loss. And in the Christian tradition, we have a very, very long and rich tradition of emphasizing the brokenness of death, that death is a product of brokenness. And so grief is a fitting response. And that kind of expression, I think, has potential to be transformative for us and our communities. But grief and despair are distinct in that way because um, despair is not really necessarily rooted in the real. Despair is rooted in a projection of what we imagine to be true about the world. Um, it, it assumes that there's nothing that can be done. So it assumes a knowledge of the future, which humans don't have. So it's not rooted in the real. And then therefore, whether or not it's meaningful um, is something that we should at the very least debate. I suppose the other part of it is that despairing language, I can only, you know, I'm speaking about despairing language from my own context, which is in the minority world. And I think despairing language, which has become increasingly um, prominent and obvious in climate movement and outside of it in the minority world is a kind of hubris. It's a kind of arrogance. Um, as I said, it rests on an assumption about the future that we don't have, but also we are part of a culture which has been founded like on the assumption that we have a superior capacity for rule. So we're a post-colonial culture. Um, we've, we've behaved historically in ways which assume that we are better placed to act um, and to make decisions than other people. So we've placed ourselves in this role of the great problem solver um, and now we feel guilt about that, but we still assume that salvation or even just improvement must come out of our context because that's where we're, we're accustomed to it coming from. And so then when we fail, which we have done, um, climate breakdown is a very clear testament to our failure. I think it's not surprising that we then find it very difficult to imagine that solutions might come from elsewhere. And so despair is um, very tempting. I guess the big particular warning there as well as around um, the temptation to encourage despair in other people, um, which I think is a particularly cruel thing to do. In the Christian tradition, there's a, a long history of distinguishing between um, emotions or what would be previously described as passions and um, virtues or sins. So um, Aquinas would distinguish between the sin of despair and the passion of despair. And I think one of the ways we can know that we've crossed over from the passion of despair, which is, you know, a bad thing happens and we think, oh, no, you know, it's that this is it. It's over um, to the sin of despair. One of the ways we know that we've made that transition is if we find ourselves behaving in ways which 
um, encourages other people to despair. And I think the other perhaps danger with it is that, again, in the context that I'm sitting in, despair also rests in the background knowledge that um, if nothing can be done, I'm not going to suffer first or worst. So it is very tempting to choose not to act while knowing that I won't face the consequences directly of that failure to act. Um, and so that gives our despair a particularly dark hue that um, is not necessarily true of people in other parts of the world who experience profound despair over um, climate breakdown. Um, so I guess one of the things I'm interested in with both grief and despair is the ways that our um, responses to the world hold power. And so the way we choose to act on them um, has particular power to it. And that's a theme that's explored in the book. I was struck in the book by how many of the contributors talked about their own complicity in, in the climate crisis. Um, this isn't just about blaming oil executives. There can be a, a quite damaging divide that is sometimes presented by people within the climate movement, that we either have a choice between you know, lots and lots of privatised personal action and treating everyone as though they're individually responsible or entirely blaming big corporations and refusing to accept any personal responsibility at all. And I suppose one of the responses that, you know, practically that can be made to that, and I think that's one of the themes that comes up in the book, is that while um, individuals are, um, particularly individuals who are not extremely wealthy, are in no way um, responsible for climate breakdown to the extent that it's taken place. In order for the rule of terror that oil corporations essentially have over our economics and politics to change or to fall, the private lifestyles of many, many people will have to change dramatically. So we'll have to move towards a model which is very much private sufficiency and public luxury would be one way of putting it but we will have to expect to consume a lot less in the future for that change to be possible now of course in part our consumption is a product of being trapped in a certain way of living which is difficult to get out of so that's why public luxury is so important but nevertheless that relationship is still there and I think that's one of the ways that we can begin to accept how we are complicit I think from a Christian perspective, there's a real question of personal holiness that comes up here, both in accepting a kind of inability to escape um, the nature of sin in our lives, that we, um, we all participate in um, behavior which is greedy, which is selfish, which is violent, and that will always be part of the way we live in the world. And to, to accept that about ourselves is in part to accept the consequences of our behavior, but also by acknowledging that complicity, we can examine what personal holiness or personal faithfulness looks like for us. So um, I think it's quite helpful for me in my own response. And, and this helps me avoid paralysis or a feeling that I can't do anything is to be very clear about what changes I've made in my life, which are in order to pursue personal holiness. So what things am I doing that I believe um, help me to be faithful as a disciple? Of Jesus Christ? What things do I do that help me to shun selfishness or greed or living in ways which are callous or indifferent to the suffering of others? 
And what things do I participate in? Because I also believe in the existence of structural sin and the importance of Christians um, challenging uh, structural corruption and structural violence. And knowing that those things will be the things that invites um, major change. But I think both are important. And one of the reasons both are important is that it's very, very difficult to challenge structural sin um, and to change structures of violence if we are living um, directly hypocritical lives, not just because of the way others might see us, but because it's personally very draining. If you believe in one vision of the world, but the way you live is completely counter to the vision of what you want to see happen. Um, and so it's not only a question of faithfulness, but also a question of, I, I suppose, a living out a kind of hope um, that an alternative way of living is possible, not just for you, but for others as well. I mean, does that tie into some of the conversation about um, climate activism and how sustainable it is and whether people become exhausted and if, if there's an integrity, I guess, between how they're living personally and the activism, are they less likely to suffer that sort of burnout because there isn't that sort of incongruity there? Perhaps. And I, I suppose the other part of preventing burnout is Again, it, it comes back to this tendency or this uh, assumption that provokes despair, which is believing that the solution must lie with us. And if it doesn't lie with us, it doesn't lie anywhere. I do think that's a tendency which is more likely to be seen in climate activism in the minority world. I, I've encountered it myself. Um, I'm also familiar with that emotion to feel as though if I participate in something which fails, um, then how do I convince myself that I should try again? I think there's also, because of this sense that the solution must come from us, failure is, um, is, is very emotionally high stakes. So when failure happens, there's a, a real emotional exhaustion or burden, which is very difficult to deal with. And I suppose trying to um, resist that temptation to see your action as potentially the source of salvation, shall we say, which, you know, runs directly counter to, to what we believe theologically anyway, takes the burden off things like uh, the consequences of failure. We are not responsible, ultimately, for salvation for the world. And um, we should in many ways expect failure to be part of our work um, because we're, we're finite, we're human. And um, if we can accept that, then it becomes much easier for people to join uh, because we resist those forms of purity culture, which prevents um, wider movements. But it also makes it much easier to try again. With that in mind, the, the, the climate movement outside the church, we met many of its members that are not going to be um, Christians or, or people of faith. Um, and what sort of resources can they draw on to not think that it's all about them saving the world and, and could the Christian tradition provide resources, do you think, um, for, for those um, friends in the movement? I guess I'm, I'm wary about treating the Christian tradition or our theology like, like, a, like a buffet of ideas and that some of those can be picked out uh, and found and then given to other people as useful. I think sometimes that can be slightly dishonest about the quite particular claims of the Christian faith. So we pick out the bits that we think might be most palatable for people who aren't Christian. And also it, it encourages a, an approach to 
it, it encourages a, an approach to unity or to acting together, which turns to the lowest common denominator. So we try and find the thing that is we most have in common um, rather than celebrating um, participation from very distinct and diverse uh, worldviews or ways of living in the world. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, one lowest common denominator that I see quite a lot is this idea that the world is sacred. So this, this language of sacred is something that's shared by people of lots of faith traditions and none. So people will refer to, oh, well, we all see the world as sacred, so we can all share that position as how we do this work. But the sanctity of the earth means very different things for different um, religious groups. And so there's something lost in not leaving space for that acknowledgement. And to be honest, I think a better offering to the climate movement than some bits of you know, spirituality from Christianity would be that the church wakes up and joins the climate movement en masse. You know, what, what's required is, um, is the presence of, of many more people who are willing to um, bear witness, who are willing to uh, be sacrificial. And so that also to me is what it means for the church to be a witness to those who are not in the church of um, the hope that the church offers that uh, if we cannot um, if we cannot see the relevance of um, the gospel to climate breakdown, then we will not be able to present the gospel as relevant to those who um, care deeply about it and who are who are working um, to challenge the systems that have caused it. Can I just come back to grief and the rituals of grief that are described in the book? Um, can you explain what, what are some of those and why they're important? Yes, so. We have in, as I think I've said, in Christian theology, we have a very particular approach to seeing death as a product of fullness or brokenness. And so we have very rich rituals of grief already in our Christian tradition. Now, of course, we share that with other religious traditions and cultures around the world. Um, there really aren't any societies that exist where grief or death is not a center or a focus point for ritual. Um, and gathered community. So I think one of the reasons that we tend towards this particular approach to ritualizing grief is both an acknowledgement of its power, that ritual helps to um, contain and define grief experiences for us. So one example that we might think about is the ways that we have particular burial sites or particular or on anniversary days we may um, particularly grieve the loss of someone on the anniversary of their death uh, or we have um, all saints day or all souls day we particularly remember those who have died um, and we focus on communal expressions of grief on those days and times and that provides a container for grief which makes it manageable and approachable um, it it also um, has the safety of taking place in community. So one of the things I'm interested in is the way that privatized grief can be particularly dangerous. If we only grieve on our own, if we um, treat something like climate or ecological grief as a, as a grief that we have to bear individually without sharing with others, it can both give us a very warped sense of what, what it is we're grieving. So it can, it can mean that we, for example, imagine that we are the only ones who feels a certain way. Um, it can also uh, distort the loss of things. So one thing I've noticed is that 
um, in the kind of work I do, it's very easy to treat everything as though it's all dying in a similar way, right? So you begin to notice the death of, of other creatures and then you see it everywhere. You can't unsee it. Um, and if we, aren't, if we aren't sharing those experiences of grief with others, then there can be no counter or challenge to the ways we project death or suffering where there is none. And of course, it can also be a moderator because we will encounter the grief of others um, that will cause us to think more carefully about the way that we express grief or what we've experienced as grief. So um, I think our rituals of grief, although we don't currently have rituals of grief that necessarily have been recognized by particular denominations or churches that are centered on something like climate or ecological loss, we already have a lot of resources that give us ways to approach what climate grief might look like as a ritual or a climate grief that takes place in, in community in particular. And there are examples of how that's already happening. So uh, people have tried doing things like setting up um, burial sites, sort of um, imagined graves for extinct species so that people can visit those sites and mourn the loss of particular species would be one example. Um, but I am also interested in how we can make sure we're not just replicating uh, rituals that we do for the loss of humans that we know and love to rituals or ways that we talk about the loss of the non-human because they're quite distinct in the, in the kinds of grief experiences that they provoke. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think that grieving the non-human is, is just an extent, extension of what it means to grieve the loss of a family member, for example. The importance of lament comes up quite a lot in the book. I, I think I'm right in saying as a, you know, a, an alternative to denial or despair or, or that sort of thing. That, and do you think the church is especially well-placed to provide a space for lament, perhaps in the context of worship? Yes, in that we have a very rich history of lament. Um, one thing I've noticed in recent years, which does concern me slightly, is that we've started, I mean, I think laments come back in fashion, right? So <laughs> we're all doing lament now. <laughs> One of the things that concerns me slightly about that shift is that the ways I've encountered it is that lament is treated like an extension of feeling really sad. So um, in order to lament as congregations, for example, we have to make everyone in the congregation feel bad first and then they can participate in lament. And we might do that by telling them really sad stories or getting them to think about something that's horrible. <laughs> Um, which is, you know, spiritually dangerous because it can re-traumatize people. We don't know what people have experienced when we, when we do that kind of work in churches. Uh, we don't necessarily know that they've got um, space to carry that afterwards. And so it's, it's dangerous in that sense, but also it's dangerous in that people who don't necessarily respond very well to having their emotions gently manipulated in group settings then feel as though lament something they can't participate in because they don't feel sad on command. And I think, you know, like we've made considerable moves in our public conversation towards emphasizing that we don't just praise God when we feel happy, but that praise is a discipline that we do regardless of how we're feeling. Lament is similarly not just something we're called to do when we feel really sad. Although it is useful in that time, you know, it's not that we shouldn't lament when we feel sad, but that lament is a discipline that belongs to everyone in the church and is something that I believe is a vocation of the church, regardless of the regardless of whether you've had a good year or not. And that means that we, we sort of avoid the risks of 
um, spiritually hurting people, but also we avoid the risks of making lament uh, like a specialized occupation for people that are very emotive and can cry in public, which, you know, will exclude most of the Church of England. So if we can try and um, talk about lament in ways that treat it as, as part of our tradition, part of our ritual, um, part of what we expect to do as we gather, then that will help us. And the Psalms are a great model for that. The Psalms provide um, songs of laments, which were communal songs of laments, which people participated in, you know, not necessarily because they felt a certain way. Um, I, the, another thing that interests me, you know, is that for much of human history and actually in many parts of the world still, you have people who are professional mourners whose job is to loudly wail in public, not because they necessarily feel like they want to loudly wail in public, but because they are there to express the feelings of the community. And we have really overemphasized the significance of our personal feelings at any given time or moment in our culture, which means that we find it very difficult to participate in expressions that we maybe think aren't genuine but I don't think that's necessarily what the the discipline of uh, lament or praise is for in the church I think it's for everyone. To end um, just thinking about how climate grief interacts with with resurrection for you as a Christian I mean there might be those who perhaps crudely say well there's resurrection hope of, of new creation in heaven and in the end it's all going to kind of be okay so yeah your thoughts on that? One of the questions that I wanted to ask in this book was um, what climate grief means for the whole of Christian theology, not just for a particular part of it. And that means that one of the questions I have is what does climate grief mean in light of the resurrection? What does it mean to experience that particular way of understanding the world, of seeing the world through, through the lens of suffering, through the lens of loss, um, through the lens of um, deep pain? Um, spiritually and emotionally in light of belief in resurrection and I think what I what I came to was that what I don't want to say is that resurrection belief in resurrection provides some kind of balm or lessening of the experience of climate grief and I, I don't think it does that um, not in my own experience of it but I think what it does do is provide an understanding of climate grief, which might be distinct from how those who don't believe in resurrection experience it. So I think the reasons we experience climate grief, we could say that it's something like honesty. So we're trying to be honest about the world, the world we live in and the way it is. And that's a really good reason to grieve. Um, we, we're called to truthfulness as the church. And so we should participate in that honesty. And another might be compassion. So um, there's plenty of research that demonstrates that when we um, express grief, when we um, allow ourselves to experience feelings of grief or sorrow over the pain of others in particular, it invites us to compassion. And so we could talk about grief as a gateway for people into compassionate action, into solidarity. And that's also a good thing to do. You know, um, Jesus was moved to compassion at the sight um, of the people and so acted on their behalf. But I think for Christians, there's something else going on, which is that when we grieve death, we, we believe that because that's a work of love, which I think it is, um, our works of love participate in transforming the world. They participate um, in bringing about a transformed world. And that's difficult for us to necessarily understand or see the fruits of now. But um, just as I believe that when we praise God, 
um, we participate in transforming the world around us, that that act of worship changes the way that the world is. When we grieve, when we participate in, in sharing our grief, that work of love will not be wasted. Our works of love belong in um, a renewed world. They belong to a renewed creation. Um, and they're also, uh, it's also a way of thinking about grief, which emphasizes that it's not, you know, misplaced affection for temporary shelter. So we don't grieve the earth because um, we, we've got our, our attention all wrong and we should, we should really not feel that way because our attention should be on God. We grieve the earth because um, this is the home that belongs to us and that God has given us. And it's the place that we believe that will be resurrected, where our affection is, is rightly placed. And climate grief is an expression of that. Um, I've particularly been influenced by the ascension in my thinking about what resurrection means for grief. So the idea that not only was Jesus raised in physical body, raised in a body which um, you know, touched and ate and walked with the disciples, but that also Jesus ascended to heaven with body. And so there's something very mysterious and beautiful that we claim in, in our creeds, we claim in the Christian tradition that um, the dust of the earth, a body born of a woman also dwells at the heart of God. So God not only comes to earth to redeem it and not only is raised on this earth, but also takes part of that earth with him um, to the heart of the divine. So when we grieve, we are rightly expressing a very profound and I believe eternal relationship that we have been gifted with. Um, but also we participate in transforming that world um, that we've been gifted with. We participate in something that um, will be raised, will be resurrected. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.